just knows what this world does to dreamers. And that's true. Don't nobody want to be Martin Luther King's mama? Hey friends, if you've followed my stuff for a while, you know that one of my favorite people in the world is Micah Borne, a guy that I consider the embodiment of sincere Christian spirit and prophetic voice in our society. You might not always agree with him, but you got to believe that he comes with a sincere perspective and one that challenges a lot of the stuff that is providing uh, opportunity for sickness in our world, spiritual, physical, economic, and for our show, educational. This is a crosscast, and I wanted to announce that uh, with this show, we are simultaneously releasing this same audio with uh, a new endeavor called Cast. Cast is a podcast that I am producing and doing this as a labor of love with some of my colleagues at Concordia University, Irvine, through a program called Quibono, in a way, but all of the talks are not Quibono talks. If you're familiar with Quibono, if you're an alumnus of Concordia University, Irvine, you know that this is a volunteer activity of students and faculty that get together to discuss ideas and then apply them to the challenges of life. Well... Uh, the tour guide for this is my uh, dear colleague, Christian Koenig. She is a professor of sociology, and all the other uh, active participants are faculty and students that just want to be uh, engaged in the life of the mind, but for the good of the, the world. And um, this is one of those shows. There are already six other episodes that we've released. If you follow that, you'll be able to get a little bit more of that academic stimulation in your life via podcasts. It's like going back to college. Well, imagine you were there with us. This took place at the Honors LLC out in the, the courtyard there outside of our place uh, where Stacy and I live uh, right now on campus with students interested in these ideas. And what's fun about it is Micah is going to come and talk about a lot of the things that the residents of the Honors LLC uh, might be surprised to find aren't as important to him as uh, they might have expected, like standardized tests. And so um, we did this on purpose. We wanted him to challenge some of the assumptions about uh, the canon of Western literature, about the ways that we think about the curriculum for young people. And I think it's a very poignant, compelling, sometimes entertaining, sometimes tearful show. Thanks for joining us. Let's go. All ahead, one third. All ahead, one third. Aye, aye. Time by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons in outfoxing religious wolves. And sometimes we will address emotionally difficult subjects. So make sure you pay careful attention to our descriptions of each of the episodes. And then also have some resources handy, such as the Crisis Text Line. That's one of our favorites, which is 741-741. That's 741-741. Now, just take a deep breath, because we're not afraid to go deep. But don't worry we'll also have some fun along the way. Our plan is to help us all resurface with insights and tools to help heal ourselves and our communities. So come along, because we got this. Three, zero degree. All ahead full.
Cool. Uh, yeah. So um, before I share the poem, I want to. Uh, he asked me to talk a little bit about kind of where it came from, and um, it's funny because I have I have a blues album called No Ugly Babies, and uh, that was titled uh, from something my mom used to say. I'm one of six kids, and she, growing up, she'd always say, God ain't gave me no ugly babies. All my daughters is pretty, and all my sons is handsome. My mom was very verbally affirming, so I grew up with a very strong sense of self-esteem. And I say that because what I'm about to say, it's not coming from this place of me thinking I was, like, worthless or anything. Um, but when it came to school, uh, I thought I was stupid, but I didn't think I was stupid because I didn't like myself. I thought it was objectively true. Um, and it, it's pretty interesting now uh, because people know me as a poet. But growing up, I thought I hated poetry. And part of the reason I hated poetry is because I associated it with like people who were really smart. Because I, all the type of poetry I was exposed to in school just made me feel dumb because I didn't know what they were talking about. Um, it was vocabulary I didn't recognize. Um, it was confusing metaphors and things like this. It was from a time and a place, mostly dead white folks, dead white poets. I didn't see myself in it. Um, but I, I genuinely thought I was stupid because my understanding of intelligence was getting straight A's. It was being good at things like math and science. And I struggled in math. Of the six kids in my family, I was the only person in my whole family to ever fail a class. I failed algebra, and I had to take it again. So for me, it wasn't like, oh, I'm stupid, I'm worthless. It was like, no. I mean, if being smart means being good at math and I failed algebra, then I'm objectively stupid. That's how I thought about it. And I actually didn't care, because I also thought being smart was kind of dorky. You know, like, like it was a, not a good thinking. But it was just like, whatever, not, can't everybody be good? Like, I'm, I got friends, you know? You're in the honors <laughs> LLC. <laughs> yeah. The honors yeah. LLC, like this, you nerds. This is, this is how I thought as a kid. And, um, but I really just thought, like, that's just a fact. Um, but nobody ever told me that my interest in, specifically hip-hop, was an interest in something productive because hip-hop was seen with all these negative stereotypes, especially being raised as a church kid. You know, I'm, I'm like this youth group kid who's in love with gangster rap because I'm from Long Beach and the time I was growing up, you know, we had Snoop Dogg, Nate Dogg, Warren G. And so it was like this guilty pleasure. Um, and I didn't associate it with intelligence by any means. But the older I got and when I started writing poetry and hip-hop as well, and then I realized, oh, I thought I hated poetry, but I only hated a particular type of poetry because now that I'm, like, educated in a different way enough, I can recognize what was in hip-hop the whole time. I thought, oh, I just like these rappers that got dope flow, but I'm like, nah, I appreciate all the poetic devices they employ in their music, all the, you know, metaphors and the double entendres and the turn of phrase and the alliteration. Um, and I'm like, oh, I've loved poetry my whole life. But that was never seen as legitimate poetry or something good because it wasn't just because it was gangster rap. It's because it was, it was black, you know what I'm saying? And it was an art form that wasn't seen as something that you should, you know, study. And so anyway, uh, it wasn't until I really started engaging my creativity and started performing at open mics that people would come up to me afterwards and they would say things like, oh, man, like, you're so smart. And it was confusing. It wasn't like, no, I'm not smart. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm, I'm just spitting a rap song or a spoken word poem. That don't make me smart. I'm stupid. I failed algebra, <laughs> you know? And, uh, 
anyway, so that this poem is kind of about realizing like, oh, the way I was taught to think about myself and, and intelligence and creativity was, was all wrong. So that's where this first poem comes from. It's called Native Tongue. <clears throat> According to ShakespeareOnline.com, the English language owes a great debt to Shakespeare. He invented over 1,700 of our common words by changing nouns into verbs, changing verbs into adjectives, connecting words never before used together, adding prefixes and suffixes, and devising words wholly original. If I could, I'd spit this in whatever mother tongue was ripped from our mother's lips. But the closest I got to that is hip-hop, is black talk, is improper, non-proper, unproper, uneducated, un-educated, unscratch, assimilated, me talk, we talk, our talk, make y'all wish I nom tom about talk, make y'all ask your black friend talk, make y'all run to urbandictionary.com talk, that one thing, that something that belongs to us, that us you try to demonize, envy, copy, despise, that us you try to categorize, stereotype, try to shame our broken English you wish you could understand, but you can't never get it because we stay fly, we stay fresh, we stay change, we stay everyday new way to say we never believed your lies, we never spoke your tongue, we've been ineducated, uneducated, un-educated, unscratch, assimilated, and if you ever want to know what we talking about, maybe you need to unlearn a thing or two. Who says rap lyricists are anything less than Shakespeare? Shakespeare, a man who turned nouns into verbs and invented 1,700 words. That's funny. When we break the rules, we're called ignorant. When we invent words, they're called slang. The way we talk is improper, non-proper, unproper, uneducated, un-educated, unscratch, assimilated. We ain't never been dumb. We break English like chains. This is our native tongue. I want to introduce um, uh, kind of what we're doing here as well. Um, this is going to be something that um, is, uh, I think we'll do it as a crosscast with something that Stacey and I are doing, Protect Your Noggin, so that we can, uh, you know, really promote what we're doing here with the Qui Bono cast. But uh, let's hear for Dr. Kristen Koenig to tell us a little bit about what, what's going on with the Qui Bono cast. What are we up to? Go, no, golf clap. Come on. <laughs> Just because you know her. <laughs> I was telling Micah, I'm really excited because we have some alumni joining us. And I think that's the whole point of what we're doing here in COVID times is highlighting some of these great conversations. And I know that Micah has a following because I see your poster still there next door. Um, Qui Bono Cast is a way to capture these if you can't make uh, evening conversation. They're happening on a Tuesday. They feature outside speakers when we're allowed to really kind of dive into that. And also some of our our great colleagues here talking about liberal arts questions. If you uh, caught the first conversation from Dr. Dean, right, really talking about sort of what are we doing here in this time? Uh, if you talk about if you caught Paul Elliott, who said, you know, what are we doing here at all? And so it's, not, you know, these are philosophical questions, but they are being captured for your, um, your benefit to give us feedback and comments on, and we hope to capture these 
also for your friends who are not here. And I know for a lot of my students, that's kind of one of the things they mourn is the people who are you can't be with right now. So please share that. I think you've all received an email with um, the Zoom link when we're when we're live. But then also um, there's a website which is. Well, it's actually you can go you can go to cuy.edu forward slash quibonocast. That that'll get you there, and then it'll look silly after that. Uh, in terms of a longer URL. You can also follow us on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and then today is our first day that we're uh, live streaming this with YouTube. I don't think there's anyone paying attention to it, but we're, just, we're trying it, right? And so if you just follow us on YouTube, it'll be a little bit behind. If you want to stay involved in the immediate conversation, you then want to go to the chat function in Zoom. And will you be able to take a look at those questions yes. as we get so to the end? I'm going to be up here monitoring questions. But also, if you have a question, I'm going to be kind of looking out. And I think the way that I've seen Micah works is pretty free flow. So if you have a question, even after a set, please kind of put your hand up, and I'll try to make sure that you get the mic and we'll properly sanitize. I will sanitize it and run it over. Let's, let's, let's start with this, and maybe we can ask a couple questions and then see if the students have a question about this particular poem. Micah, do you think... I mean, thank you. Um, always, I always enjoy um, these, these, challenging, these challenging questions because part of what we do, right, is I'm, I'm getting paid to give people something... We call the Western canon. This is the stuff you need to be reading. And if you don't read it, then you somehow don't get access to certain conversations. And this has always been something that troubles me um, because it, like, on the one hand, we want everybody to be able to have access to these conversations about Shakespeare or whatever. Um, To what extent do you think, if we look at, and by the way, friends, this is called the King's English. We're having a conversation about ways we could actually think about rethinking education, what we're studying, how we're studying it, and that sort of thing. To what extent are those old, archaic, sometimes really difficult to, to make sense of forms of art and poetry still valuable, do you think? Yeah, I think they're still very valuable. Uh, I don't have issue with them existing or them even being studied um, at all. But my problem with it is it being held up as the pinnacle of really human expression, right? A human thought, whether you're talking about poetry or whether you're talking about um, any history, or it's always the thinkers coming out of the European tradition. I was public schooled my whole life up until college, right? Um, And I live in Long Beach. It's a super diverse city. I I don't think I had a single black teacher kindergarten through 12th grade. I had a few non-white teachers, but I didn't have a single black teacher in Long Beach. And our classrooms, especially in high school, were crazy diverse. Um, but then, so, so, so first of all, who I'm being taught by, right? There's a, we all have our own biases. So most of my teachers were white, you know what I'm saying? Um, both in public school education and then I went to a private Christian college and that was even less diverse than my public education. So who I'm being taught by, information, I mean, 
education is never truly objective. Um, but even if the information was in theory, the teacher, the way they interpret that, is going to be affected by who they are and how they think, right? So the majority of my instructors were white. Then I think about um, the content itself. Again, we studied Shakespeare in middle school and then again in high school. Like he's the only poet in the English language, you know, and I'm not saying Shakespeare isn't valuable, but again, the type of poetry that I was exposed to made me think I was stupid, made me think poetry has nothing to do with me or my people group. When there are dozens and dozens of contemporary black American poets speaking, writing amazing things that, and because as soon as I got introduced to an expression of it that I saw myself in, I was interested in it, right? It took literally one event. I was in college. It was the summer before my junior year. A friend invited me to an open mic. People were doing spoken word poetry. As soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, poetry can look like this? I care about this now, right? So it's like, I wasn't, I didn't hate school like I thought I was. I hated the type of education I was getting because it just seemed to, I didn't know this at the time, but I, I was excluded from it. I was being uh, assimilated. Um, and I think it's, it's a problem. And again, we're talking about California. We're talking about public education. We're talking about Long Beach. Like this is as liberal as it gets for America. This is as inclusive as it gets for America. And still my education was so whitewashed, right? Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's really frustrating because I think a lot of people think that it's just that education is objective and that like, oh, like a classical Western, you know, it's like we never, like the only time we really studied anything black was during Black History Month. You know, we may have read a couple books here or there, but I didn't get any perspectives because I didn't have black teachers. So I didn't, I never got educated from a black perspective on anything. Um, who would you think that would be valuable to have in the canon? I mean, without, you know, making you go through, you know, a, a long list, but I mean, maybe, maybe if, we, if we were to start thinking about some things, for instance, my uh, core history students, they're, they're supposed to be comparing somebody from the Western tradition in their paper to a voice that's similar on a similar theme um, that's, that's not part of that same tradition. Just give us maybe a couple, uh, a couple ideas of who might be really good to include in the canon, in the, in the, in the stuff that a high schooler, a college student should yeah. really find transformative. I mean, the thing is, you don't even have to dig that deep. Even the black voices, excuse me, the black names, I should say, that we know, we, we haven't listened to them. Like, everybody knows Martin Luther King. They know the name. But I realized after I graduated, so I was public school my whole life, and then I went to four years to a Christian school, and I was like, I have never read any Martin Luther King. He wrote books. He was a theologian. He was a philosopher. He has books. And we like read a snippet or, you know, listened to a part of his speech or a speech here or there. But I'm like, I was like, especially once I got to college, I'm like, this is a Christian education in America, if I'm studying the history and of faith in this context, like people politicize him to be like a civil rights leader. He was a ordained minister who saw his work as part of the gospel, right? The I have a dream speech, he's quoting Amos, 
He's quoting the prophet Amos, let justice roll down like a mighty river, right? So it's really no excuse, especially in my college, but even in um, growing up, you know, again, public school, why would we not read Dr. King? To get, uh, I don't know. So it's like, I also don't necessarily think that I understand the idea of certain influential people throughout history and the concept of a canon, but I think it's problematic, to be honest, because um, people who are currently living and experiencing the same world that you're living in right now, you know, um, they have a good perspective on it. They have important things to say. People aren't, their voices aren't more important just because they lived a long time ago, right? Um, And so, but if we're talking about African-Americans, James Baldwin is another one uh, that I'm like, well, if we're going to put anybody in a canon, again, he was so brilliant. He wrote in so many different genres. He wrote poetry. He was a philosopher. He was a speaker. Um, He was a gay black man. There's so many different intersections um, and the time that he was living in. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, I could just list a bunch of black people, but, uh, you know, it's, I really, I know for me, some of the most engaging both writers and um, artists are not people who are dead. Uh, Bell Hooks has been rocking my world, right? Like, but she's still alive. She's elderly, but she wrote on love. She wrote on feminism. She wrote on faith. Um, I feel like All About Love should be a required reading, you know, and this is a African-American woman who's still breathing, so. Yeah. Can you riff on that? Because um, that's something I was just thinking about. It's not just in the past, right? What about who are you reading now and how do they influence you? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to read. Uh, I, because I went to Bible college, I used to primarily just read like theology and philosophy. And I realized, again, that was limiting uh, in, in a sense because there's theology in everything, right? In stories, in poetry. I mean, as a poet, right? I'm like, I really didn't read poetry that much when I started writing it. Um, so I've been reading uh, more broadly and trying to read novels and trying to read poetry. Uh, but again, from voices and perspectives that uh, I didn't get in my formal education. Um, so, I mean, I always draw a blank when I get put on the spot, but I read a, I read a lot of poets. One of my favorite poets is uh, Anis Mojgani. Um, he's of the Baha'i faith. He has a book called In the Pockets of Small Gods. It's a beautiful book. Uh, he's kind of, he's grieving the his best friend committed suicide, and then also he was married, and his wife cheated on him, and they got divorced. And so the book is about grief. Um, but it's also about celebrating the good times with his ex-wife and with his friend when he was still living. Um, but it, it starts off like one of the earliest poems in the book. It might be the first poem. Um, is just him just imagining like what life after death is, and it kind of starts where all these people just like floating in their caskets down the river and then someone pops their casket open and it's like, is anybody there? You know, and then they start talking and it's just this beautiful, it's a poem, but it's a story and it's like, um, someone's like, is that you? Oh man, oh man. And anyways, it's, it's this really interesting thing where now, um, where I was just, 
always exegeting the text, you know, um, and now I'm reading poems, now I'm reading stories, and, and seeing, I mean, every, every faith tradition has theology in the stories they tell, whether you're talking about Greek myth or the parables of Jesus, right? So it's like, it wasn't always just dissecting and making it all intellectual and scientific, I guess. Uh, mm, mm, that's another, that's another, okay, I'm gonna do it. Um, one thing that I, that frustrates me, is again, now as, a, as an artist, as a poet, as a musician, I understand the importance of it. But I think one of my biggest issues with education, and it kind of is related to Here Comes This Dreamer, the title. I just recently came out with a book. Uh, but when it comes to creativity and creative expression, culturally speaking, we see it as good but not necessary and far less important than other disciplines that we consider to be, uh, you know, like math, science, history. These things are what matters. When it comes to creative things, in high school, you know, the electives, those were the throwaway classes. Those were the easy A's. Nobody takes those seriously. Nobody, right? Um, And even the language we have around creativity, um, you know, if you want to be a lawyer, if you want to be a doctor, you want to be a police officer, right? Okay, so you go to college, then you go to law school. You know, you go to med school, and everyone's like, oh, good job. Your parents are proud. Everybody's happy. If you want to be an artist, if you want to be a rapper, if you want to be an actress, people say things like, oh, <laughs> you're chasing a dream, <laughs> you know? Like, uh, and it's, it's seen like, oh, like, it's just not important, it's not as important. It's good. It's pretty. It's nice. It's not as important. I talk to adults all the time who they'll see me perform um, and they'll come up to me afterwards or they'll hear me speak and they'll be like, you know, I used to write poetry or I used to paint or I used to play guitar or I used to dance, fill in creative expression. And they're like, you're, you're inspiring me again. It's been years. And I always ask the same question. I say, well, why'd you stop? And they, nine times out of ten, the answer is something like this. Well, you know, I mean, uh, life got busy and, you know, then I had a full-time job where I got married. I had a couple kids. Things were stressful. I didn't have a lot of time. And so I just had to, you know, let it go. And I say, let me, let me say back what I just heard. So you used to do this thing, this creative expression that helps you calm down that helped you process your life and your grief and your joy, this thing that brought you so much life. And then life got more stressful and more busy. And so you stopped doing the one thing that helped you process that stress and that grief. I'm like, I bet you if you would have kept playing guitar, you wouldn't be as stressed out right now. (laughs) Okay, maybe you stopped touring with your uh, friends and trying to become famous, but maybe every day after you come home from work, you pick up your guitar for just 15, 20 minutes and you play. Because that, creative, that creativity is part of being human. It's something we all do, whether we're aware of it or not. Every time you put words in a particular order, every time you put an outfit together, even people who are good at things that they don't see as creative things, they are. If you're good at math, you're good at math because you approach it creatively. Because you see the same problem that everybody else sees and says, ain't no answer. And you say, actually, I can think of a few backdoors. I can get creative to try to solve it. Creativity is a part of being human. And so as long as we culturally, whether it's like really in your face or subtly disrespect it or see it as less important, you're going to have situations. You're going to have kids like me. You're going to have adults 
who think they're stupid. You're going to have adults that are not stupid at all, but they just need to be encouraged and let the creativity inside them come out. And I mean, I genuinely thought, and I didn't see anything wrong with this, um, but I just thought this was my only option. You know, I thought I was just going to do some type of manual labor or, you know, okay, fine. You know, I can be a janitor. It's nothing wrong with being a janitor, but my, I thought that's all I could do. I could, I could, I could push a broom, you know, because if I'm not going to become a doctor or an engineer, which I'm not, because I'm not great at reading, I'm not great at math, then there's nothing else I have to offer, right? So um, that's kind of how I thought. And I just, I wish that we could change that, that narrative of really understanding the importance of creative expression in all things. I'm not just saying everyone needs to be a vocational artist, you know? I'm saying, if you want to be a pastor, you need to understand the importance of creativity, you know? If you want to be anything, you know? And so here comes this dream, and the reason I said it's related to that is it's, it's, it's somewhat of a, it's a sarcastic title, to be honest, because most of the time when people talk about dreamers, again, they think about people disconnected from reality with their head in the clouds. Oh, you're a dreamer. Like, that's cute, but it's unrealistic. You know, get a real job, you know, type of thing. Um, and so culturally, we act like we value dreamers and artists, and the dream, dream, to be a dreamer has a positive connotation superficially, but in actuality, we both, we not only disrespect it and find it less important, but we're actually hostile towards it. Um, And where the title actually comes from is um, the story of Joseph, right? Where he had, in scripture, he had these dreams uh, of greatness in his future, and he shared that with his family, with his brothers and his parents, and um, his older brothers did not like it. And when they, they, that wasn't the only reason they didn't like him. They didn't like him for a lot of reasons, right? He was the favorite of his parents, all this stuff. But when they decided to betray him, what did they cite? He was walking out towards them in the field, and they whispered to each other, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw his body into a pit. So you hear the title by itself, and you're like, oh, here comes this dreamer. Then you get to the title poem, and it's like, here comes this dreamer, let's kill him. Because that's actually the truth. Because when Martin Luther King came and said, I have a dream, here comes this dreamer. Let's kill him. Let's kill him and throw his body into a pit. That's exactly what they did. And in the afterword of the book, there's a conversation I was having with my mother. And I've never really understood why, up until this conversation, my mom is hilariously unsupportive of what I do. Um, and at first, I always just thought it was because I'm an artist, um, and she just wanted me to have a real job. She would always say that, oh, you know, get a real job. That's, you know, poetry and a job, you know? <laughs> and I was like, my mom's a hater, whatever. You know, I brush it off. But one time, I was having this real talk conversation with her, and I just didn't get it, because I talk a lot about racial issues. And you know, my mom's almost 70. She's a black woman in America. I know she's faced prejudice. I know that she has been hurt by these systems that I am raging against and trying to deconstruct. And so I never understood the resistance. And I was like, Mom, why? Why are you fighting me? You agree with me on all these things. And you know what she said? She goes, Micah, you already black. You already black. And now you got to run around saying all these things that make white people mad. I just feel like you're just painting a target on your back. And 
And it was the first time that I finally felt released from seeking my mother's approval because I realized, oh, she's not just a hater. She doesn't just want me to have a real job. She just knows what this world does to dreamers. And that's true. Don't nobody want to be Martin Luther King's mama? You want your babies to live, right? And so that's what it was. She was like, I feel like you're painting a target on your back. And that's true of everybody who dreams. It is, because you're challenging what is. And if you are envisioning something that disrupts the world that is, then anybody who is privileged in the way things are, anyone who is benefiting with the way the world is currently structured is going to be upset with you. Can you please stop dreaming of a better, more equal world? I am benefiting off of this injustice. Let me kill you. Right? So anyways, so yeah, it's kind of a facetious double meaning. That's what Here Comes This Dreamer is. I've just accepted the fact that, you know what, if I'm going to envision a beautiful, just world, that means a lot of people are going to hate me. Man, ah, that's heavy. And uh, when I was asking you about the canon, I think one of the ways you're answering it is, it's not just like, okay, here's these other things to prescribe. It's partly making sure that you've got a balance in the, in the various types of things you're studying. It could be some new creative person or some new scientist, but it's, it's not locking it in. But one of the, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, and I think that's important because even if you diversified the curriculum, I don't just want us to still have a Western education that just has, you know, voices from other, it's, it's a whole way of learning, of thinking. Again, the way that I was taught to learn and to think about, you know, intelligence, I thought I was dumb. So standardized tests would make me think that I am stupid. If being smart means getting really good scores on the SATs, then I'm not smart. That's a problem, you know, because you have all these kids from diverse backgrounds and home lives and, you know, some speak English as a second language and they are brilliant in Spanish but they're going to fail the English test, even though they know two languages. They just don't know the second one quite as well, and now they feel stupid, even though they're smarter than all the other kids in the classroom because they got, they're bilingual, right? you know what I'm saying? And so it's just, there's so many assumptions, um, and it's the structure itself. It's not only the content. I do think it's the structure itself. It frustrates me on so many reasons, on an economic level too. Again, you go to poor black or brown, you know, minority inner city kids, and you say, unless you go to college, you're going to be nothing. You're going to fry french fries the rest of your life for minimum wage, right? You kind of sell them this, this is your only hope. Okay, cool. I guess I'm going to college because I want to make something in my life. Okay, cool. Well, here goes thousands of dollars worth of debt. People who are already poor. So the only way to get unpoor in America is to get I don't know, forty to $60,000 worth of debt for most people who go to college, graduate college, right? That's not a problem if you're coming from privilege. It's not. You can get rid of that quick, or maybe it's never debt because maybe the family trust pays for it, whatever. But again, it's like, and then we know now, like, graduating with a degree is not that, it doesn't really help out that much. It's not that easier to find a job. There's just so many things about the structure of education that I think is just taking advantage of 
poor folk and making people of color feel like they're dumb. Yeah, I think connected to that, one of our alumni wants you to answer this question, if you can. What can people do in a non-creative role to encourage the flourishing and value of creativity that isn't currently there? I mean, I, I really, I, I want to encourage this. Every, everybody in every field, I think creativity is necessary. I think we can make a distinction between um, you know, like vocational artists. I'm not saying everybody needs to be an artist, but I think there is no role that would not be improved if you approached it creatively, right? Everyone has a part to play, but how do you, you know, do whatever it is you do um, and think about it just differently than the way you taught, were taught it has to be this way? You know, whether you're talking about, you know, you could be in money and budgeting. You know, again, it's like, let's get creative in how we do, you know, distribute this budget that we have. You know, you have to, it, there, there's so many things. You can say, what is, you know, what is someone who just, you know, makes a budget? That's not a creative thing. Yes, it can. I mean, you can give money to things that offer a drastically different experience, or you can just keep saying, well, this, this people get this much, and this department gets this much, and this department is running on a shoestring budget, um, <laughs> and they need more resource to do different things and have a different experience and change the narrative. You know, so I really don't think anything is non-creative and valuing creativity. My wife will be glad to take your money in exchange. We will not keep the money, but you can get a couple options there for books. Here comes the dreamer. Came out just today for us. Well, it didn't come out. He just got it today in the mail, uh, the second shipment, right? And then also there's an anthology there, and uh, there's, some, there's some fun people in there that you might have uh, met before. If not, um, it's, it's, it's a great way to pick up both of them. And I really love, uh, I, I asked Micah to, to make sure he brought down a sticker, Fight Evil with Poetry, so I could put that on the, the, the truck that we sometimes live in. Uh, but what I'm going to do now is um, I'm going to play a song, because you know, technically we're not allowed to have uh, musical performances. We can have worship. Okay, uh, but we can't sing. So instead, we're going to uh, have to make do with this video. This is a lyric video that you can catch, and I bet we won't be able to see it. Um, but you can uh, pay attention to the words. I'm only going to play it once. This is called Fire. Do you want to say anything about it beforehand? No, Let's get going. Here we go. <laughs> If I had my way, if I had my way, if I had my way, I'd tell the building. If I had my way, if I had my way, if I had my way, I'd tell the building down, down, tell the building down. I'd tell the building down. Let me hit you with a riddle. If a school gets shut up from the neighborhood, tax on the neighborhood, Poe, guess who get a better education? Or the youth from the ghetto If I had my way as a young kid Creativity would have never been elective Everybody paint, everybody poetry Everybody take design and photography Home economics, hip hop, history How to make a super duper stupid hot beat 
Everybody drama, everybody yoga, everybody meditate until the class over. Everybody plans a community garden. Everybody talks to a therapist often. Everybody got teachers that look like them. Everybody read authors of colorful skin. Ain't nobody got a past standardized test because they prejudice and never measure our intelligence. Only our ability to follow the assimilation. Try to tell us if we didn't, then we'll never make it. Kids like me feeling stupid when the truth is I can spit so hard. Not getting into Harvard, but I got a lot to offer. Set flame to my report card. If I have my way, I bulldoze a tank straight over the schoolhouse gate. Miss Frizzle with the bus, everybody load up. Every day is a field trip day. chemical addiction need to be in prison just because they caught with the drug they are dependent punishing the sickly Whoa. calling it a justice system no. if you got a mental health condition you don't need conviction you deserve some medical attention shout out to the critical resistance fighting for the demolition of the prison business rich men making big bank offer inmates who work for slave wage judges and the cops is playing the same game the more that they lock up the more that they get paid Black man getting more time than a white man who commit the exact same crime. Black man reaching for his ID dies. White man take a dozen children's lives. Still somehow they arrest him alive. Unreal how they don't even conceal their bias. Killing black folk like a roach or fly. Protect and serve is a joke and a lie. Scurred from a life when they flash them lights. If I have my way, every cop get fired. Every prison replaced with a safe space. For the addicts and the violent to rehabilitate. Penitentiary a deceptive name. Put you in a cage, make you more humane. If I have my way, I would tear this thing right Right down to his racist roots Put your picks to the fro And your boots to the flow And your fist to the baby blue It's the new Jim Crow But the same Negroes And we still got that revolution You know I don't be running from truth Young black boy, everybody gunning for you Yeah, I'm preaching to the choir Cause you living it too Piss poor education in a crumbling school State of the art prison Waiting to get full of bodies With dark pigment They claiming it's just law In order but percentage of brothers incarcerated Severely exaggerated Compared to our population I'm impatient and sick of the hatred Make it into college They try to assimilate ya Only black boy on my dorm room floor What I come here for Now I'm really unsure Every level up A little more isolated From the melanated village That it takes to raise me Woke up like, why am I stressing the labor at a table as a token exception? Don't want to bless it if it's only for me. I'm dismantling the evil of American dreams. Demolition to whatever, keep my people in chains. Poverty and ignorance, forget the gradual change. They've been saying not for centuries and still we remain. On the bottom of the barrel, I ain't playing the games. Tear the house down every time I step on the stage. Set the roof on flame with this African rain. Okay, <laughs> so uh, one fun fact about this song before we get into the lyrics. Um, the chorus, if you hear in the beginning of the song, it's this really scratchy recording. Um, this chorus, actually, I did not write it. Um, <laughs> hold on. This, all right, yeah. This chorus, um, I didn't write it. Believe it or not, this is a gospel song. <laughs> it's a gospel song. Um, Man, I love black people. I just have to say that. Um, but uh, slaves, black American slaves, um, they had this 
they were brilliant, they would sneak messages into their church music. And this song is actually uh, about the story of Samson. And I just came across it like a couple years ago. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh my goodness. Because the song, literally the, the verses of this Negro spiritual is just telling the story of Samson. You know, old Samson was a mighty man, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then uh, on the chorus, though, I mean, so the three verses are telling literally what, just what happened, you know, and then Delilah and cutting his hair and, you know, getting captured by his enemies. But if you know the end of the story of Samson, what happened? His enemies had captured him, plucked his eyes out, turned him into a slave. And they were mocking him. They were having a party and they brought him out to mock him. And he prayed, Lord, give me strength one last time. And it says, Samson pushed the pillars of the house that he was in over and the house crumbled on top of him, killing him, but also killing all of his enemies, all of his torturers, all of his slave masters. So, the slaves are like, oh, we're just singing this Bible story. And the white people's like, okay, fine, whatever, sing the Bible story. And then they get to the chorus, and it was like, if I had my way, I'd tear the building down. I'm like, these fools were not singing about Samson. <laughs> they weren't. They were singing about themselves. And I just thought it was brilliant. Brilliant. So when I heard that, I knew I knew that literally the first time I heard, I never heard this song. I actually came across this random website, which is the Library of Congress, and they have these recordings of the, like, a section on their website, the Library of Congress has a section of the earliest recordings of every, like, American folk song that they could find. And so, like, Kumbaya and things like this, and, you know, even, like, uh, Wade in the Water, but there was this song on there. I had never heard it before, and I was like, oh, this is it. and I'm literally just listening to these scratchy recordings of the earliest, like, recording technology, and this was a song on there. I just listened to it, and I immediately knew what they were talking about, and it was crazy because I was like, today, this is how I feel. I would tear the building down. I would tear down these systems of oppression. Um, so, anyway, that's where the chorus comes from. It's like, a, it's like a thesis. I mean, I, I couldn't, I could pick out one or two lines. We could talk about it forever. Um, but one of the things, when, when uh, Stacy and I ran into you in um, Nashville before COVID, I think you'd said that you, there's two things I thought was interesting. You had been reading a lot. And that, that was kind of where I was going. I don't just, I'm not just interested in maybe throwing in a few African-American writers, but you yourself were reading outside of all sorts of categories. And you said that you felt... Um, spiritually homeless. So I hear, you know, this is, right? This is, you're, you're taking this Old Testament narrative and you're, and you're applying it. Like, you know, for me, it'd be, it'd be Luke Skywalker and Yoda burning down the Jedi temple, you know, which feels liberating and also it's a, it's a frightening idea. But uh, could you elaborate a little bit on the, on the spiritual side of things? You know, so you, you had gone, you know, you mentioned you went on to a, a Bible college mm-hmm. and very conservative. This is Moody Bible College. They don't. They didn't let beards exist. Is this fair? <laughs> uh, we had a lot of strange rules. You could have beards, but you couldn't 
grow a beard during the semester. It was very weird. <laughs> so you started you like, had to have it already or not? If you was baby baby, you had yeah, it was weird. <laughs> Dwight Dwight Moody had a beard, kind of like yours, Joel. Um, but what but but what do you what, what do you feel in these days about that that concept of your spiritual the spiritual refugee? Yeah, yeah. I just I I, I struggle to feel at home in particularly in the spiritual communities that I was a part of. Um, and because it's just like, I mean, you, we all know, we've seen the news. We know what American Christianity and evangelicalism is associated with. And clearly that ain't going to work for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but it's really interesting uh, because as I've gotten away from that and in other circles, um, that are about a lot of things that I am also about, but I am still very much a Christian, right? Um, and there is, understandably so, a lot of disdain towards Christianity um, because a lot of terrible things have been done with it. And so it's like, in one sense, I'm in you know this group of you know progressive artists who are fighting for justice, and I feel like, oh man, like there's some things that I know if they, I, like if they, if they knew I was a Christian or if they knew I believed this about this particular thing, they wouldn't be homies with me no more or they wouldn't like me anymore, you know? And then obviously in coming out of kind of like conservative evangelicalism, I'm like, I don't feel at home there at all, even a little bit. Um, so it, it just feels, and you know, I'm, it, it's just, I don't know. It, it, it feels very lonely. Um, yeah, it does. Yeah. One of the questions that just came in was about anarchism mm-hmm. and anarchy. So what's the sense of mourning that seems necessitated by living the creative life? Yeah. Um, I think a lot, especially in that, the lyrics of that song, you know, um, I mean it quite literally. Um, I'm nonviolent, but I think you can have revolution uh, without violence. India did it. I think you can shift culture without violence. The, uh, obviously, the civil rights movement did that. Um, I'm sorry. I'm responding to the first part of the comment about anarchy. I'm a, I'll have to ask you again about the second part. But the, the thing is, um, I personally don't think reform is working. Uh, you are painting the walls a different color. You're shifting the furniture around in the rooms. But the problem is in the foundation. It's in the building. It's in the walls. It's in the pillars. It's in the ground. You have to dig it up. And you have to put new things down. I want to give examples, concrete examples. Because I don't just want to sound like people like write me off as just an anarchist who hates authority. No, I'm talking about very, very real things that have proven themselves over and over and over again that they cannot be reformed because they were never meant to be just. Um, so let's just talk about the economy. Let's talk about capitalism as expressed in America. First of all, is America racist? Was slavery racist? Yes. But the racism was driven by greed. Free labor. That's how you make a lot of money. How do you make a lot of money? By keeping your costs low and your profit. That's how you keep your profits high, right? If you can produce something at a little cost. What's, what is lower cost than free, right? But how do you 
justify slavery, well, you invent narratives that you know, are dehumanizing. Because as long as a black person was a human too, then you couldn't justify it. But as soon as we have convinced ourselves that, I don't know, because of evolution and they're lesser beings or because of whatever, they are animals. Now, it's, you don't feel bad about cows on a farm and slaughtering them, right? You don't feel, once a black person was not human, then we don't feel bad about exploiting them as slaves um, and we can get rich, right? So, but I don't want to just talk about slavery. I want to bring it into modern day. There's a, there's a poem in, in Here Comes This Dreamer um, and it's, I'll just, I'll just tell you about it. Maybe I'll do it later, but it's titled Lament for Mother Tubman, right? And what this poem was about was the reaction I had when a few years ago, when Obama was still president, there was an announcement made that Harriet Tubman was going to replace Andrew Jackson on the face of the $20 bill. I remember hearing that and getting on Facebook, and so many of my friends were excited. My black friends was like, man, I can't wait to go to the bank. Be like, let me get 300, all Tubmans, please. (laughs) And uh, I was laughing, but... I wasn't actually excited. There was something in me that when I heard the news, it just felt bittersweet and more bitter than sweet, if I could be honest. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why. And then I came across this article, which between the announcement, it still hasn't happened yet. Still just another promise that America has not fulfilled to the black community. But um, I was, I, that announcement was made. And then I came across this article about the city of Boston, and it was called The Color of Wealth in Boston. And it was a study um, that was done on the, basically, yeah, the wealth distribution among different minority groups in the city of Boston. And the median net worth for non-immigrant African-American households in the greater Boston region was $8. The median which means there was a good amount of people below that too. The median net worth was $8. The median net worth for white families in the same region was $247,500. This was 2015. So unless you are willing to believe that all the black people in Boston are that much lazier than all the white people in Boston... This is not working. It is 2015, $8 for a black household, not even an individual, the whole household is worth median $8. $247,500 for white folks. This is how our economy was intended to be, to privilege white folks. You can I mean, what can we do? How do, you, how, do you, how do you fix that gap? You cannot. Not as long as, uh, as we're set up the way we are. So it's not about making minor tweaks because we've tried, right? We've tried over and over again to reform and to bring this, and, in two, and again, it's five years late, um, old, but still, not that much has changed, and it wasn't unique to Boston either. You go to any major city in America and you go to the poor side of town, guess what you're going to see? Because it's in the structure of how our society is built. Period. You know, when you, again, when you talk about police reform, we've been 
talking about this for years. Black Lives Matter didn't start in the Trump administration. It started when Obama was president because they killed Trayvon Martin, because they killed Sandra Bland, because, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank, the other guy in New York that they, you know, choked to death. Um, and, and that wasn't the beginning of it either. You go back to, you know, the early 90s when... Uh, the LA riots, you know, because Rodney King got beat on camera by police and they set the city on fire because nobody was really held responsible. And everyone was talking about what? Back in 92, police reform. And guess what happened? Nothing. What happened was they probably did a couple of diversity day training sessions and then forgot about it. And then police went straight back to killing black folks. It's not working. It's not working. And it's a unique problem in America because they do not, no other nation's police murder their citizens, not just black people. By the way, having police that are less violent will benefit everybody. This is not just like, oh, this is black people's fight. Every human being in America will benefit if our police didn't kill folks because they kill white people too, you know? Um, but the thing is, it's like, we are so, we can't even imagine. We have a problem with dreaming of a world where the police aren't running around with lethal weapons on their hip all the time. That's what a police is in our head. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of the work they do does not require, you do not need a gun on your hip to give someone a speeding ticket. If that's, you know what I'm saying? Uh, like, and we have examples. There are other nations. You look up, the, the, the information is very easily accessible. Like the rate at which American police kill is so much higher. And we've been reforming it for decades. So it's not working. So I'm not saying there has to be like no type of body that is maybe committed to crime prevention or addressing it. But I'm saying at this point, it has to be so fundamentally different from what we understand to be policing that we shouldn't even call it the same thing, right? We should dig it up from the very roots and plant different foundations, you know what I'm saying? And I say the same thing with prison. Again, our incarceration rates are astronomically higher than everybody else. They... Other nations don't have this problem, and they approach it differently. And so, yeah, I do mean tear it all down and build something different that has different assumptions um, from the beginning that recruits different type of people to be police. Um, you know, and the same thing with education and the same thing with the economy and the same thing with, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what else to do if we are $8 still all these years after slavery, you know. That was a poem right there. Um, what's the sense of mourning that seems necessitated by living the creative life? Yeah, I, I, I truly feel like it is a, a blessing and a curse, right? Because I... I see things that other people just don't see and you feel crazy. You know, you, you feel nuts 
Um, but you're not. And I think, again, here comes this dreamer. It's this idea that dreamers are disconnected from reality when in reality, they are the ones closest to reality. For example, I mean, it was like late 1400s, early 1500s. You know, da Vinci was drawing what he called flying machines. And everybody said, all of his contemporaries, bro, you're crazy. Everybody knows only birds can fly. 400 years later, the Wright brothers took off in human flight. This man was 400 years ahead of his time. But he believed it was possible. And it would have never happened if somebody wasn't willing to look crazy. Right? If everyone just accepted like... No, yeah, we can't do it. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> somebody had to look up at the moon and be like, I think we could walk on that one day. Are you nuts? Somebody had to be like, y'all, hear me out. Maybe the wor- world is not flat. Just a thought. <laughs> right? But literally, like, People were seen as crazy or as heretics, were burned at the stake, were persecuted by the state, were persecuted by the church for believing in things that were considered impossible or heretical or unscientific. You know, women cannot vote. Absolutely not. They're not as intelligent as men. No, black things are not human beings. They're property. And again, somebody at all of these points, I'd be like, nah, 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 nah. It is me against the world, but I am willing to look crazy, to be mocked, to be killed. That's not fun. And most of the time, you're not celebrated until after you're dead and gone. Martin Luther King is not an American hero. Martin Luther King was assassinated by the American government. It, they actually owned up to it, by the way, if you know this. This was not a lone ranger. Like, upon the investigation, he was in cahoots with government officials. So we retrospectively call him a hero. We hated him as a nation, the we. The nation hated him. And he died young. And he was stressed out. And he was fighting and fighting and fighting. And he was slandered and... So uh, it's not like it's yeah, it's beautiful. I'm thankful for the things I see and the convictions I have. But yeah, it's incredibly lonely. It's it's incredibly lonely. Again, it feels homeless. It feels like you know, and people just some people are hostile and then some people just write you off. They're not hostile, but they're like you're going on and on about some poems. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, oh, you just want more art in school. I'm like, yes, literally that could change lives. I'm serious. I mean, look at all I'm doing through hip hop and poems. It's so much bigger than just that. And I thought, I think to myself, you know, I didn't get into spoken word poetry till I was 20 years old. I didn't start writing hip hop till I was 18. I listened to it when I was younger though. But I'm like, what if I had a 10 year head start? You know, what if in elementary school, middle school, I was introduced to the art of spoken word, and someone saw my love for hip-hop and, and recognized it um, as something positive, and they encouraged me in it. And I had a 10-year head start on doing all the things I'm doing now. 
that could change the world. You know, what would it look like to take the electives and make them core curriculum and to have a generation of students who just the way we force algebra and we force all types of things on students, you don't have a choice. You're in school. This is what you do. Uh, I don't know. What if we did that with creative things? Even if it was still in the more Western, like, like if everyone had to learn music, it wasn't an elective. Just like you learn to read, you learn to read music and you don't just take it for a year or two. You take it every, all the way through high school. So now you have a generation of, of, of students who are all music literate who can read and write music. What would that do for society? We don't know, but it might do something cool. It might, it might, it might change the world. Seriously. You know, um, what would happen if you had a generation of kids who like, were exposed to music production? You know, I mean, again, computers was very difficult for me. Like, learning how to use computers. I'm not great with technology, but I guarantee you if someone came to my elementary school, like I'm going to teach you how to make beats like Dr. Dre. I love computers. Let's go. Let's go. It's still difficult, but I'm going to figure it out. Right. I'm excited about this now. Right. What happens if we have that? And again, required and not just for like a little cute little program for a week or two. Right. I don't know what we have to imagine something drastically different if we want drastically different re- results. And that's the problem. People want drastically different results without actually doing drastically different things. You know, they want equality, but they don't want to sacrifice their privilege. They want to keep these things and read all the people they were taught you have to read and do things the way we've been doing it. We'll make a few changes. You know, we'll have a token here and there. We'll give up a couple seats at the table. But we want things to change without changing. <laughs> That doesn't work. We're almost really out of time, but I have a microphone here, and I'd love to get one or two student questions, and then we'll let you maybe ask questions in person, uh, or off camera, off mic. Uh, but would somebody want to come up here and ask a question? I've got a chance. It's our favorite time. We love it. <clears throat> get out of here. Hi. Uh, so I, it occurred to me earlier when you were talking about electives that when we talk about um, black history being shared more often, it mostly comes in the form of an elective. So yeah. black history is an additional thing instead of uh, being part of the core curriculum. Mm-hmm. Can you speak at all as to how that might be a problem? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, black history is American history, you know, and if it was treated as such, it would be different. Um, again, we... We never read Dr. King, and we only hear about him a little bit in February, Black History Month, and then, then we're studying all these other people. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's just, yeah, there are so many ways where we could just incorporate it uh, in a way that feels not like a, well, we have to acknowledge this. <laughs> you know, it's just tokenization, basically. Um, but I'm like, you can't, it's crazy that we're even able to because you can't talk about anything in America, uh, with, especially if you're talking about history, without really that dynamic between black and white folks. And yet, there's so much erasure. Like, we know we're here, but the only thing here is, yeah, black people used to be slaves. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's pretty much it. But, I mean, if you're talking about culture, again, especially, and this is one, this is one thing that makes me very proud to be black, because we are, like, culture makers, like American, I saw a tweet that said, uh, like, pop culture is just retired black culture. 
And it's true. It's like, I mean, like so many things that end up becoming mainstream, you know, started in the black community and were not celebrated when it was just within the black community. But when a few white people saw, saw it, liked it, and figured out how to take it and monetize it and, and get white fans, um, or uh, then it became mainstream culture. Um, and so I'm like, everything from Elvis to, uh, you know, like Elvis was literally just singing songs and doing dance moves that black people were doing. But when black people did it, oh, look at those gross, licentious, sexual, gyrating, shaking their pelvis, ill, disgusting, sinful fornicators, right? And then Elvis gets up there and does the same leg-shaking pelvic thrust, and you have the whole nation of white women losing their minds, and he becomes a super wealthy superstar. And black people was doing that in the South, and everybody just said they were sinful and gross, right? Um, same thing with hip-hop. You know, hip-hop comes along. This isn't even music. What is this? Same thing with blues. All these things, jazz, they railed on jazz. What is going on? This isn't music. It's not Bach or Beethoven, blah, 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 blah. You know, and it started in, in the South with black folks. And then when white folks started liking it, then they had these big old you know, jazz bands, American bands, and everyone loves it, all these things. Um, so again, like, you're talking about American history, you're talking about rock and roll, everything, all, like, so much of American culture is just black culture uh, that was taken. Um, so, and I personally don't necessarily, I think, the problem is not that it was spread. It was that it was not acknowledged where, where it came from and we're not honored. Um, and so many people like our style and then don't even like us. <laughs> and that is frustrating. You know, it's like you want to talk how we talk. You want to dress how we dress. You, wanna, you want us to entertain you. You like it, but you, you don't like us, you know. And it's just, it's really frustrating to see, like, y'all know that we're dope, <laughs> you know? Like, you know that we are offering valuable things to this world, and still, um, it's just kind of weird. Can you close us out with a, with a poem from your new, uh, your new book? Yeah, you yeah let me... I get, I get you one. Yeah, I gotta grab one. Um, again, yet, this book just came out not even, two, like, a month and a half ago. So it's called Here Comes This Dreamer. I'm selling them for 20. Um, I also have a book called Fight Evil with Poetry. I just edited uh, that one. I have three poems in there, but it's, it's 30 different poets uh, writing about justice issues and from all different backgrounds and faiths. It's super dope. Um, and online, they're on sale for $20, but today, if you want the anthology, I'm selling it just for 10 So the, the, these books are 20 the anthologies are 10 and then I got some CDs and some stickers that are free. The stickers say Fight Evil with Poetry. But um, since I referenced it, I will, uh, I will read the uh, poem about Harriet Tubman and the $20 bill. Let me find it real quick. The median net worth for non-immigrant African-American households in the greater Boston region is $8. The household median net worth was $247,500 for whites. The color of wealth in Boston a 2015 report by the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, Duke University, and the New School. 
America promises to print Harriet Tubman on a $20 bill. A cruel and unusual honor. Let the faces of greed remain on their guard. Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but keep my mama out your filthy palms. Remember all the nothing that changed when this nation literally tokenized Sacagawea in fake gold? Remember how indigenous people still live in squalor? You can't blackface a dollar and call it reparations. Newly bred Tubmans crammed into privileged wallets, sardined in bank vaults like the holes of slave ships. Businessmen pass a pimp a stack of Harriets to rape a teenage sex slave with African hips, while Mother Tubman's daughters and sons struggle to keep the heat on. In Boston, a black father dies after decades of wanting to. New England's bitterness finally froze his will to hope. He left his family a modest inheritance, a suicide note apology, $8, and a special edition Celtics jersey. In Boston, a black mother dies after decades of refusing to, after freedom marches and protests, after cancer stole both breasts, after spending her savings on saving herself, she leaves her daughter a closet full of church hats, an award-winning cornbread recipe, and a family Bible with $8 hidden in Philippians 4.19. My God will supply every need. America really believes they're doing us a favor painting our faces on their dreams, writing in God we trust on this blasphemous economy, assigning net worth to human beings. Life ought to be priceless, but only the breath of the highly appraised gets protected. No wonder this nation considered us more useful as slaves. Capitalism ascribes an $8 value to free black lives. If Mother Tubman was alive today, she would need two and a half selves before she was worth the weight of her very own bill. Thank you for joining this episode of Qui Bono Cast. The show is made possible by the support of CUI's administration and the volunteer efforts of members of Concordia's community who help spread the word about our great conversations together. The show was produced by Jeff Mallinson. The opening music features Arpanchenko on drums and Carl Kasperson on bass, coming from Zach Sothal's upcoming project entitled Street Corner Revival. Our closing music features Tim Bauer, Daniel Enmark, Chris Matthews, Matt Preston, Jude Wright, and Steve Zink, four of whom are CUI alumni. Qui Bono programming this year is under the direction of faculty advisor Daniel Dean, and I'm your friendly academic tour guide, Kristen Koenig. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at quibonocast at cui.edu. Join us next time for another conversation about how the life of the mind can help us address and enhance our daily lives.